Hi, my name's Stephen Crafty and I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne and I'm here with landscape designer Kate Seddon who I literally didn't know anything about until I saw a couple of her gardens and I just thought, oh my god, I thought they were just so gorgeous. Um, I couldn't. I just felt they were felt just so right for the houses. So, um, welcome to the program. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Oh no! Look, I I love talking about gardens, and um, but I think what struck me about the gardens that I did see um, already, they were just felt like they'd been there for a long time, rather than just tricked up for, you know, with a few box hedges in a matter of few weeks. There was that. It just had depth. Thank you. Well, I mean, when we're um, working on designs, we really do try to get a sense of of the of the client, of the architecture, of the setting, um, and really produce designs that have a a sense of place, but b really fit in with that very individual brief. I think what I loved about it most is it wasn't a look. It really wasn't a look. Uh, which I thought was really commendable. So it was obviously your voice, yeah. but it, it, it could have been, it just seemed right. Before we start looking at your gardens, um, you started in advertising. Yes. Uh, so I came out of uni, wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do um, and found myself um, getting a traineeship with the Advertising Federation of Australia, which is a sort of... Um, um, a, a broad introduction to advertising for a year and then hopefully a job to follow, which I got and um, and had a fantastic advertising career. Ending for how up, many years? Oh, um, <coughs> just under 15 years. That's I ended a long up, time. It is a long time. Ended up in um, New York working for Young and Rubicum in New York on um, Sesame Street and Fisher-Price toys. Mm. Um, so I did a lot of um, work in packaged goods and... Um, and uh, had lots of fun with it, but came back to Australia, got married and had children. And though I went back into advertising briefly, I realised it wasn't very um, conducive to family life. Um, it was great fun when you're young, um, but not so enjoyable as someone who has other so, responsibilities. So, Kate, what was the trigger to get into gardens? Um, when I'd gone to university first time around, I sort of did it because I did it coming out of school because that's what you do. And I wasn't particularly inspired. And when I went back the second time, um, I had two young children. I was very interested in something that was a bit more grounding and a bit more solid than advertising. Um, and I was interested in gardens, but not a passionate gardener. And I thought, look, I'll see if I can get into Burnley because that was the place to go because they are, you know, the most well-credentialed horticultural college in Australia, I believe. Um, and if you've ever been to the Burnley campus, which is located on a bend in the river in, in, um, in Burnley, um, it is a wonderful little haven of um, a small botanical garden, um, wonderful campus buildings, fabulous staff, um, and within a week, I was hooked. absolutely hooked. <laughs> um, uh, and um, I started doing it sort of thinking that I was just interested and then I very quickly thought, well, which direction can I take this? Do I take it into perhaps a job with a local council where I'm advising or do I want to go into the design side of things? And I was 
obviously with the um, background that I had in advertising, even though I hadn't worked on the design side of advertising, I'd been uh, a suit, I'd been in account management dealing with clients, um, there were a lot of skills I already had that I could see that I could translate to a design job. And and that was... Um, so what, what was your first job, Kate? Uh, my first job was for um, some friends from my son's school who had been nagging me for three years saying, can you come and design my garden? We know you're doing this course. And I said, well, I'm not ready and I'm not ready and I'm not ready. And eventually I was ready. And um, so that was a lovely, tiny little entry garden and driveway in a house in Brighton. Um, and I still, you know, I look back at it and I think that was a nice job. It was well executed and um, I would be happy to look at it now and um but that was you know for a friend for a couple of bottles of wine <laughs> and, <laughs> and then does it just snowballing or trickle it trickled because i had a three-year-old and a one-year-old and you know my life was not entirely open to developing a huge career at that stage but that was what was great was that after i'd studied at burnley for two and a half years and then i did a a few, further few um, additional um, subjects at Burnley beyond that, um, I just was able to build a business slowly. So initially I worked one day a week and then two days a week and then three days and then before I knew it, it was a full-time job. And, and So how does something evolve? I mean, look at take if you take the example, which I saw at Garden recently, it was a Marcus Martin house. Yes. Um, those who don't know Marcus Martin, he was a very important modernist in the 30s quite classical but kind of with quirky little details that you kind of only discover yes so how do you approach a house like that um i think um well in the case of a project like that we we spoke initially with the architects and and their vision for the house and what they were interpreting from that in their restoration and renovation um often i'll see something initially that gives me a cue like there'll be a certain tile on the veranda or there'll be um, some remnant thing in the garden, like um, this garden that we're looking at here in Lawn. Um, there was a, a piece of um, uh, a, a little um, carving with a poet, piece of poetry in it that we thought, well, we've got to keep that and we've got to keep a sense of that garden um, there might be something physical in the garden. Again, that lawn garden had a, a driveway that um, was surrounded by retaining walls and we didn't want to step away from how those retaining walls looked, but we wanted to bring it into a more contemporary setting. So sometimes there is a uh, an imprint in the garden that you want to convey. Um, I, I don't ever think you can go in there with bulldozers and scrape everything out. Because that seems to be a bit of the trend with a lot of designers. They think they have to start from scratch. Yeah, I think people are also, um, you know, less hesitant to work with what's there already. and um, What they feel like it's not a great garden. Yeah, it? it's not great or I don't like that tree. But often you can look at a tree and you can reshape it or you can lift the canopy or you can plant things around it that anchor it or... Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I think you try to maintain some sense of age in a garden and it's really important in that sense to hold on to big trees. Because yeah. it takes years can. to develop. Even if you bring in a very mature specimen, it never is quite the same as having a, a tree that, that's grown there and, and grown into that size. Um, we, you know, we tend to find in our work that 
we will use semi-advanced trees because people want a little bit of um, uh, stature, but we won't use absolute monster trees, mostly because I think um, environmentally it's very challenging to establish them. And secondly, because they haven't grown in that space and I feel like often they don't, they often feel imposed for a very long time mm. rather than growing into it. Um, Kate, getting back to the Marcus Martin House, what I noticed upon arrival is there's a beautiful pond yes. framed in stone yes. and I said to the owner, I said, oh, you're very lucky you've got the original pond. <laughs> and she said, no, that's actually Kate's edition. Uh, yes. But it had it looked very authentic. Yes. So tell me about that. I mean, is it something that you saw on the original scheme of Marcus Martin's or something you just felt was quite right? No, we didn't see any original drawings for there. But at the rear they have um, some low stone walls and raised beds that look Edna Walling-ish, of, you know, of that similar period. And so that stonework then inspired what we might do at the front. And um, we wanted something that was a bit, um, a, a softer approach. It had been quite a hard-edged front garden, probably non-original, but um, we wanted to soften that. Um, and they were keen to have a pond. And so the pond of necessity needed to blend in and it sits, yeah, with a, a framing of Castlemaine Slate sitting in some um, pebbles that we have chosen a selection of colours to merge in with the slate and um, the existing path is still there. So, again, we had to work in with the colours of that and, and just blend it and and it's nice to hear that you know it feels like it was always I there did. I yeah thought, I thought how lucky yes you've got the original pond <laughs> no that's a beautifully um you know uh, fully functioning it could be a swimming pool it's got the most amazing filtration the system other, the <laughs> other thing is you know obviously if you've got the space and the land you can create some magical um gardens but there's a house that I looked at recently yes. um where it was only a slither of space in front of you know, a beautiful home that's been renovated. Yes. Um, and but you created something there. It was a really quite an interesting sense of arrival. What are the challenges in, in creating something uh, in that have, space? Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's um, uh, clever tricks, obviously, in terms of um, increasing the sense of depth by having garden beds that are layered. Um, in that space, we had to have some solid paving coming out from the house, but we very quickly dissipated that into paving that was set between greenery and then into the garden itself. So even though it's only three metres deep, you do have this sense both of a paved surface and a garden, but merging, so both seem larger. Mm. Um, and then using walls to have climbers growing on it, so you have a series of, of spaces that you can vegetate, even even in a very narrow garden bed. And look, I've only seen a few of your projects, but water seems to be a thread that you use quite often. Uh, water no. where appropriate. Um, I think sometimes people... Um, you know, create natural watercourses where they should never have been. Um, but, yeah, water, I mean, water is a lovely element. The sky is a lovely element. Shadows, we work a lot with shadows and thinking about how plant, how how sun will um, come through the site and what you will see, backlighting and, yeah. and plants that throw shadows onto gravel are really interesting or onto surfaces. Um, so. Kate, look, in the 50s, gardening was big. 
everyone was an expert garden. Everyone, you know, dyed their hydrangeas blue. And, um, you know, it was a big thing to be um, at home in the garden. And then it kind of disappeared probably... A number of years ago, it became a style thing. Yes. And people said, I just want low maintenance, don't want... Do you think there's a bit of a return to the garden now? Um, I think people are much more aware of the positive effects of a garden setting and the enhancement that it makes to a house. So the views outwards, the interactions within the transitions out to the garden are really important. Um, I think in the case of those two gardens that you've mentioned, we have two passionate gardeners in those owners yeah. and that makes a huge difference. So they'll say, look, we want something, uh, we don't mind if something's a bit fussy to look after, we'll deal with or, it. Or, they, or they, they get great joy out of it. Um, they get great joy out of coming home and spending time in the garden and enjoying it. And and that maintenance question that you, you posed, um, there is no such thing as a no-maintenance garden. Um, there are gardens that can be low-maintenance, but every garden needs attention to some degree, um, whether it's picking up leaf litter or whether it's um, having immaculately trimmed gardens. We don't tend to design gardens with a lot of pruning and trimming because um, I think gardens need to be lived in and I think when it becomes a burden or someone has to come in three days a week to, to manage clear. it, yeah. it's, 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 it's a piece to look at but it's not actually a piece to be in. And you want gardens that you want people to be in and that when they're in their house, they're also enjoying viewing out to that space. Kate, how do you tend to start the design process? Like when you do you meet with the architect or is it sometimes just the client? How do you work? Do you create a series of sketches? Do you bring samples, photos? You know, I mean, when you're interviewing, when an architect interviews a client, they have all these tear sheets in magazines. Right. When you're presenting to a client, what do you usually so, get flooded with? Yeah, um, some some clients will brief you with, with all these ideas that they already have. Some people say, oh, I've got these ideas, but I don't want to show them to you because I don't want to pin you into a corner. Um, we tend to have a discussion on site, first of all, and whether it's with um, the client alone or the client and the architect or, or sometimes just the architect. Um, often the first Things that come to mind are the things that stick in terms of what you feel is right for that space. But then you go away. Um, I, you know, I write up a very comprehensive brief because I think, from my advertising background, if you don't have a good brief and you don't have clarity on what it is that's required, you often won't deliver um, the what right solution. Expecting. You know, um, if the brief is written well and it articulates the discussions that have been had, the desires, the needs, um, then, you know, 99% of the time the first concept you come back with answers their brief. Um, so I get them to sign off on that brief and, and make sure that we've understood that that is what they require. Do you find with um, some clients that they're kind of expecting this established garden from day one? Or do you tell them, look, it's going to take a few years before it really settles down? Um, I, t I talk about um, how much more successful gardens are when you plant them smaller. Um, but we sometimes talk about an issue that needs to be resolved now. You know, if there's a, a window overlooking from the neighbour's side and we need something that's four metres high now... Then, do it then now. you do it now. And you don't worry about the fact that it'll probably sit in the ground for two or three years before it starts really growing because it's done the job that it needs to do. This is a tree 
um, I'm talking about. Mm. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important that people understand um, nature. And, and, you know, we often will talk to clients and they want the garden done by Christmas. This seems to be this amazing deadline, 24th of December. Everything say? finishes on that date. So um, you just do a and, quick run round with <laughs> fake turf. Well, sometimes you have to. So sometimes you say to them, we're going to start construction, but there's no way we're going to be planting over the heat of summer. So we will get to a certain point. We'll make it absolutely habitable in terms of entry paths and accessibility, and you might put down some turf short term, and then you come back and plant at the end of March. Um, and, that, and that's, you know, being realistic. I think one of the things I've found in my job is that um, if we can be as upfront and honest and open as possible rather than promising the world, everyone's happier. Mm. Um, and being realistic and saying to people, well, you know, we can't do this because of this reason, not because we don't want to, but because there's a logic to it and I want to give you the best possible yeah. advice. And, and, you know, sometimes clients will want plants that are entirely unsuitable for that setting and you have to advise them. And then if, if they choose to go ahead, you say, well, you know, I completely respect that that is absolutely what you want, but you may find yeah. yourself replacing it in two years' time. Um, Kate, you, you're involved at the moment in working on a, quite a large project at Tarawara. Yes. Tell me about that. You said you described it earlier as a path, but I think it's more than a path. Well, um, the people from Tarawara came to me um, and they had an issue in that um, the museum, which is a beautiful Alan Powell-designed building, um, sits on top of a hill with a wonderful verdant um, green swathe of grass surrounding it down to the vines and then there's this lovely double avenue of poplars um, and it is a very beautiful setting um, and you know, needs no adornment, but they had an issue in that they've got quite limited park, car parking at the top of the hill beside the museum and the overflow parking down at the bottom of the, of the um, estate is not a beautiful entry to this fabulous place and people coming to major exhibitions park down the bottom of the hill and then they have to schlep all the way up the hill, up a driveway that is also used by... Um, tradespeople. Tradespeople, um, winery vehicles, arriving cars. There's quite a few points of intersection and potentially dangerous points. And it's not the best way of saying welcome to this beautiful estate. So the challenge was to work with what is there and tread very lightly. Um, and we didn't want to interfere with that beautiful hillside and we wanted to complement what's there already. So there's the museum building, um, Alan Powell, and then there's the cellar door by Kirsten Thompson. Fantastic. Which is beautiful. Um, there's also the winery building from an earlier architect. Excuse me, my brain's not going to think about that. Um, I think I know, but I've lost it for yes, the moment. Um, so three yeah. beautiful buildings. There's also the aspect out into the landscape um, at the winery but also into the broader Yarra Valley landscape and they have visitors who come there for all of those items so people who come to see the museum people who come to taste the wines have a meal at the restaurant um, also people, architecture students who come to look just at the building or just at the landscaping or just at the poplar trees when they're in their autumn colours and so there's so many different requirements for looking at that estate and we wanted to take a pathway that allowed people to have lots of beautiful vistas and to really experience in a circular motion 
um, all that is on offer there. So you're slowing them down in a sense. We're you're slowing, really slowing them down and taking them on a journey around the we, estate. Exactly. And and we're doing it in a way that's more comfortable because it is a steep slope up and an even steeper slope coming down. Um, and rather than have this issue of, um, of uh, n- you know, not the most beautiful entry, we wanted to really beautify it. So we start at the bottom car park with a, um, a welcome area that, that draws you out of the car park visually and into um, a sort of um, waiting zone or a, a place that if you wanted to take the little buggy up the hill, you can, but you also, it's, it's a place to say, well, let's meet at Tarawara at one o'clock, we'll meet down at the, and we'll walk at the up welcome gradually. area and we'll go up gradually. So it's a place for people to sit, for kids to play. Um, and then there is a series of very subtle cues in the landscaping to take you up the hill. So we have um, a crossing, which is um, a, an arrow device that points up the way you're supposed to go, crossing the road. Uh, you walk up past um, Callum's Val- Callum Morton's Valhalla sculpture, through the passageway, through the trees, again crossing over the road with some arrows, and then there's these very subtle v-shaped stone lines in the hillside that take you up the hill so they're not steps it's not a broad pathway it's not a big paved section subtle signage they're very subtle signage of these lovely stones that have been um, built in the castlemaine slate that the cellar door building is um, constructed from takes you up to the museum and then again pointing down the hill a series of steps taking you down the hill to what is now a very broad deck that looks out over the landscape up to the museum back to the um, cellar door and the restaurant deck um, and then takes you on a very sinuous journey again a stone lined pathway down past the Clement Maidmore sculpture and back to the car park and they're all very gently placed but they're giving you opportunities to stop to look to engage the steps going down to the deck actually are in a um, partly in an amphitheatre arrangement, so you could actually have people sitting there watching what's happening. If there was an event on the deck, if there was a launch, or Kate, from your from your fifteen years mm. in advertising, how does that connect to what you've just done at Tarawara? Is it when like would, do you kind of have a series of image? You know, as an advertising mm. person, you'd have a series of images that you sketch out yes. in terms of a process. Yes. Is there that connection with creating a design at Tarawara? Like, do you, how do you, you know? Um, well, I mean, I suppose in the sense of, um, sorry, I'm just trying to think. Yeah. Certainly there were, there were a few influences when we were designing it and, um, and I think in presenting those influences that was an important part of presenting the concept to the, to the board and, um, and the management and the family at, at Tarawara. Um, and there were elements of um, just explaining it um, in the same way that we do with, cli- with clients in advertising, um, storyboarding it. Basically, we did a series of renders that allowed you to see how you would progress through the site and also um, the various views at, at various points. Um, you know, there are subtle influences there. Um, certainly the crossings of the road were very much based on Geoffrey Smart's um, very bold um, paintings yeah. where you've got street signage that takes you around corners and Geoffrey Smart is well represented in the collection there. Um, 
you know, I think there's now I look at it built, I feel like um, there's a bit of an Andy Goldsworthy <laughs> influence in some of the placement of the stone. But the stone steps were also influenced by I saw a beautiful garden in um, in Umbria a few years back, um, designed by an American called Shepherd Craig, and it's a it's a wood that's been um, basically tidied up, so il bosco, um, and they've, they've um, lifted the canopy, got rid of the weeds, and created a few um, junction points of pathways and and um, and stopping points, and there's a a step arrangement there that is literally a a diamond and when you stand on it you're not really sure if it's going up or down it's a bit (laughs) Escher-like and that is really what influenced me in these V-shaped steps was um, this sense of not necessarily seeing the step for a step but it is a very subtle intervention Mm. in the landscape that allows you to see that there's a pathway. Kate the other thing is you, you know you do quite a lot of work with Powell and Glenn is it because I mean, there's obviously a synergy there. I mean, their architecture is reasonably quiet. Yes. It's not screaming at you for attention. No. And I suppose your landscapes, even though you notice them, they're not distracting from the building. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the Powell and Glen ethos is, is very elegant, but it's also, um, there's, there's a monumentality to it. It's quite powerful sort of land art in some ways. And Almost they, Donald Judd. Yeah, and they and they do have that um, real desire that while these are very strong and and bold forms, very very beautifully executed, that they like greenery. They like the overgrowth and and the softening and the anchoring. Um, so yeah, we have done some projects mm. with them, and it's been very enjoyable. We didn't have a connection with them through Tarawara, but you know I do love that building of Allen's. I mean, it's it's so striking the way it looks out to the landscape and those beautiful. And the Marcus slots. Martin is actually with an extension by Powell with an a, exactly with Powell and yeah Glenn. and yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you on a personal note why I've just I've, in my own garden I don't, I've got three gorgeous magnolias. One's a Black tulip. Yes. One's a Vulcan. Yes. And one's the old-fashioned creamy white magnolia. Love them all to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is it that people keep planting these little gems when you can have <laughs> such joy from these old-fashioned magnolias that actually say a lot more? Well, um, I hope I haven't offended you. No, 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 not at all. Um, uh, my lecturer at Burnley and a great mentor and friend, I hope, um, Andrew Laidlaw who's the landscape architect at the Botanic Gardens, amongst other um, legendary pursuits, Um, he always talks about good doers. And I think probably there are many landscape people who would say that the little gem is a good doer, as so is the ornamental pear, because it performs and it uh, is relatively um, easy to grow and mm. relatively easy um, in cultivation. You can get lots of different sizes. Mm. It grows quickly. It grows quickly and it's got nice flowers and it does this thing for you, but it doesn't make it exciting or beautiful. Boring. And little gems, you know, are not that little, actually. Most yeah. people who've planted gems. huge rows of little gems that are one metre apart get the shock of their life when they start actually growing into yeah. what is a Magnolia grandiflora cultivar. So, and you've seen them in parks. You know they're huge. Yeah, and the other thing is the flowers go brown very quickly. And I just think, why wouldn't you? I know possums are a bit of a problem mm. with the old-fashioned variety, yeah. but if you, if you can deal with it, yeah. the joy is enormous. Well, I mean, 
Magnolia Little Gem is, is evergreen. Your magnolias yeah. on the whole are deciduous, but, you know, there's the joy of seasonal change, which we love. I mean, I really love that interface between having some evergreen interest but also having seasonal change. I, I find a garden that is static year-round very boring. boring. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I mean, there are trees that we tend not to use. Little Gem is one of them. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, on the same, we're on the same path there. But there are other cultivars in that range that are beautiful. Mm. Um, yeah. Magnolia St Mary's is a lovely tree. Uh, Magnolia um, Teddy Bear, which is a rounded leaf version, or Greenback, which has got a green um, reverse rather than the rusty and, reverse. Um, just on a selfish note, Kate, how do I get rid of the possums that do attack them? Is and, it is it just? Im- <laughs> I don't want to be cruel, but what's the best way? Of- there is there is no best way, and we get asked this a lot, and I have the same problem at my house. Just I deal have, with it. I, I have a beautiful um, uh, wisteria which comes into bud and is magnificent and just about to pop, and then the possums eat all the buds. There is no... I mean, the possums are in Melbourne probably because they're struggling for habitat elsewhere. There are people who say leave out bowls of fruit and water and that's where they'll go. Does Um, that work? I don't think so. There are people who use all sorts of methods of... um, Animal droppings? Baitings. um, I've heard about dog hair tied up in stockings to... um, But that's a lifelong commitment. That's changing it every three months or something. You can put out um, dynamic lifter. They don't like it. There are laser, I mean, you know, a sound thing. I tried all that. But no, there is no good way. Um, And if there was a good way, I couldn't talk about it now. (laughs) 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 But they are a protected species. That's all I have to say, Stephen. <laughs> um, look, Kate, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I think you've been a joy. And, and I think gardening can be really exciting in the right hands. So, look, thanks for coming on today. Um, you've been listening to Kate Seddon, a landscape designer, and I've been presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.